are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. So please, you could join us here on a Thursday afternoon for our time of question and answer time. Uh, whenever I'm in town, I'm here from my home. This is in a little building in our back garden uh, in the coast of California. Other times I do it on the road, like last week, even despite some technical difficulties, we got in a question and answer time last week. Uh, but today, what we want to talk about is to begin with a lead question. This is often our comment, to begin with a lead question that comes from one of our viewers, one of our uh, people from social media, from the YouTube channel, from an email, whatever. And we pick out a question that comes in that and we deal with it. So today I want to deal with a question from Magda. Magda sends this question. She says, I have a question for you. Many years ago, our pastor at that time gave his opinion on the question of being cremated. Uh, he explained that in the days of Jesus on earth, the people that were cremated were thrown into a fire to be burnt outside the city. So there's a bad connection to being burnt. Also, most people were buried. He said that to be laid in the earth is like burying a seed that comes to life when Jesus comes to fetch us. I am a widow for just over a year now, and my husband requested to be cremated, probably because it was the cheapest option. I would love to know your opinion about this. Well, Magda, God bless you, and thank you for your question. I'm sorry to hear about the passing of your husband in the last year, and I pray that God's blessing and grace would be with you. And uh, I'm happy to deal with your question today. And your question specifically asks about the whole issue of cremation. And of course, cremation is where a human body is burned and the ashes or whatever residue is left behind is usually preserved in some kind of a box, maybe a special container that they call an urn. And uh, those ashes can be preserved. Some people keep them in a home. Some people inter the um, uh, ashes the remains uh, in some kind of uh, mortuary or something like that. Some people scatter the ashes at a special or a meaningful place. There's a lot of different things that people do with the remains from a cremated body. And so let me talk to you about this idea of cremation. And again, this is an area where Christians from different traditions will have some different opinions. I'll just give you my perspective on it the very best that I can. And just to open off by saying this, the Bible really doesn't say anything specific about cremation. N not in my viewpoint. Now, I do want to say that it's true that the ancient Hebrews would have been horrified at cremation, especially giving, uh, given their thinking of how a dead body should be cared for. In the thinking of the ancient Hebrew mind, which wasn't unique among the Jews. It was kind of a feature of that Near Eastern ancient mindset. When a person died, there was a potential fate worse than death, and that was to have your dead corpse disgraced. That's why we read in many of the biblical prophets when God is announcing his judgment upon his people or perhaps on the nation surrounding Israel, when God really wants to get severe in his announcement of judgment, he'll not only talk about people being killed in his judgment, but their corpses being exposed 
desecrated, disgraced in some way. This may be something that's a little bit difficult for us to relate to. Uh, in some of our cultures, in modern Western culture, we just kind of think, well, if you're dead, you're dead. Who cares about your body? But that's not the way that many ancient people thought. The culture of the ancient Near East said that it was a terrible, terrible thing to have my body disgraced or, you know, mocked or, you know, whatever, used as an occasion of disgrace. That, that was, in some sense, a fate worse than death. Now, I want to take pains to point out that is a biblical fact, but it's not a biblical teaching. In other words, the Bible doesn't directly teach in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that we should have such reverence for a dead body. That was definitely Jewish custom and still is in many parts of this day. But it's not the direct teaching of the Bible. And if that's talking about ancient Jewish custom, and again, oftentimes modern Jewish custom today, it's also true that some early Christians in the first few centuries of Christianity, and then even beyond, thought that cremation was wrong for two reasons. They thought it was an imitation of pagan Roman customs. Apparently, it was fairly common, certainly not universal, but fairly common for Romans to be cremated. And, and they would do it sort of in a pagan sense. And many Christians said, we don't want to imitate that. And then secondly, because they thought that it was a denial or a disrespect of the biblical principle of resurrection. And Magda, you kind of touch on this in your question when you bring up your pastor brings up the whole thing of a, of a seed. Because it is important to note that God says, he tells us in his word, that he will resurrect these bodies. Let, let me go over some of these passages with you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 38 says this, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's just drawing the idea that uh, the the there's a connection between our earthly body, in this analogy it's like the seed, and the heavenly body, the resurrection body that we will have, that's like the full-grown grain. And if you think about it, when you look at a seed and you look at the plant that comes from the seed, they may not look very much alike. A seed can just be a tiny little thing. The plant can be huge, but they may not look alike, but they are definitely connected. All the information, all the, the blueprints, so to speak, for that big plant are contained within that little seed. So they're not the same, but they are definitely connected. Uh, Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting now at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption... It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. 
it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, I want you to see here that even though Paul is very much making the likeness here between our present body being a seed and our resurrection body being the plant, for Paul, the emphasis isn't on you bury a seed, therefore your body should be buried. It's more like the origin and the destiny, the connection between the two. Paul never emphasizes the idea of the burial there. Now, again, the, the idea is contained there. We don't want to act like it's not there. But there's no emphasis upon that idea in Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's take a look at a couple more verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Here, uh, starting at verse 51, Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So again, just that basic idea there that uh, there is a connection between our present body and our resurrection body. So look, it is true that God has an eternal plan and purpose for these bodies. God's work of salvation is total, soul, spirit, and body. Just as much as my soul has been saved and is being saved and will be saved, so my body has been saved, is being saved, and will be saved. And it's true that in some way, our resurrection body will come from these bodies that exist right now. There's definitely a connection. This body, in some way, matters to God. Yet, I want you to consider this. The bodies of believers are destroyed, so to speak, all the time. They're destroyed sometimes through violent destruction. And friends, please, I, I don't want to, you know, speak in a, you know, disrespectful or, or gross, so to speak, way. Um, but look, there are people who are believers who were killed by an explosion, who died in a tragic fire, and their bodies are destroyed. So our body as a believer can be destroyed, or it can happen just through the decay of time. It's been said, and I think it's true, cremation does to the body in 30 minutes what 30 years in the ground does. You, you put a human body in the ground, and in 30 years, it's going to turn to dust. It's going to turn to ashes. It's going to be just residue, just as comes from a cremation. The point is this, is that this is the destiny of our human bodies anyway. Uh, the human bodies of believers are destroyed, so to speak, all the time. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of something that we read about in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. You know, when I um, do a graveside memorial, a funeral, an internment, uh, 
I often look to pray parts of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer because there's a, a lovely little section in there they think is totally appropriate at the gravesite. Let, let me read to you this portion. To some of you people, it's going to sound familiar here. Here's from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Again, to be spoken at a graveside. In sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, we commend to Almighty God our brother, and we commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The Lord bless him and keep him. The Lord make his face to shine upon him and be gracious to him. The Lord lift up his countenance upon him and give him peace. Amen. I, I think that's beautiful. And, and you know, the memorable part of that, the part you may recognize from something else, is the part that just reads ashes to ashes, uh, dust to dust. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? Our bodies are going to turn to dust no matter what. Um, if Jesus doesn't return first and the resurrection doesn't happen first, that is our destiny. It's just going to happen that way. So we don't have to get all bent out of shape about it. You see, we will all turn to dust anyway. And in some way, God will take the molecules of our body and reassemble them into a glorious resurrection body. When it seems like the molecules of my body are gone, God knows where they are, and God knows how to reassemble them. God does not need a well-preserved corpse to do his work of resurrection. He can just do it in the way he knows how to do it. Now, given that, since there is no specific biblical command against cremation, I think that Christians are free to choose to be cremated if it does not violate their conscience. Now, look, if you don't want to be cremated, if it violates your conscience, fine, then don't be cremated. There's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, I would say that to not be cremated puts you more in line with Jewish and Christian traditions. Because Ancient Jewish and Christian traditions do, in fact, speak against the practice of cremation. But the Bible does not specifically speak against the practice of cremation. Friends, I, I think about this, and, you know, some stuff I've been hearing lately uh, on several different issues makes me think about this all the more. We need to be very careful that we do not make laws where the Bible does not make a law, that we do not make commands where the Bible does not make commands. Where the Bible makes commands, yes, we understand that. And we preach it, we agree with it, we say this is good, we see the goodness of God's commands, but we need to be very careful that we do not fall into the trap that at least some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day fell into, where they made the traditions of man into the commandments of God. And I will fully agree that Jewish and Christian tradition argue against cremation, but the Bible does not. Not directly. Again, I understand how people would claim it does indirectly, but in light of the fact that we all turn to dust anyway, I, I don't think that that really matters. Magda, I think we have freedom in Christ about this. 
So should a Christian be cremated or not? Look, it's up to you. Pray about it. Seek God about it. If it was your husband's wishes, I don't think the Bible commands against it. And again, sorry for your loss in the last year. And um, I do want you to have, I, I love that passage from the prayer found in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. In sure and certain hope of the resurrection. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. We have a sure and certain hope of resurrection. And my guy wants so much you to have that sure and certain hope, and I trust that you have it as well uh, on behalf of your husband. So God bless you. Thank you for the question about cremation. Let's go over now. We'll take a look at our uh, side chat questions brought over here. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, first question come from the chat window from uh, Tunnel Banan, uh, Banan in uh, Sweden. Why did Lazarus in John just sleep in his grave during his dead time when the other Lazarus and the rich man in Luke both went to the afterlife Hades before the cross? Okay, well, Subway or Tunnel Banan, uh, I, I need to make this clear that um, when Jesus spoke of Lazarus sleeping, he was using a well-accepted euphemism. A euphemism is just a softer way of speaking. Jesus used a well-accepted, softer way of speaking referring to Lazarus's death. Lazarus was dead. That's all there is to it. And again, we, we use the same phrasing today. Matter of fact, the word used in the English language for a graveyard, often called a cemetery, it comes from the ancient Latin, meaning sleeping place, dormitory. It's a place where people would sleep. That, that's what Christians called graveyards. They called them sleeping places. So this is both a biblical and a traditional way of speaking of the dead. So Lazarus was definitely dead. We're talking about the account here in John chapter 12, when Lazarus died. And then after three days, Jesus came to Bethany and told Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, and he was resurrected. Okay, so what I want you to say is, Lazarus was genuinely dead. Now, your question where was Lazarus? Uh, why wasn't he in Hades, such as uh, the rich man and the man named Lazarus in a story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke? Why wasn't Lazarus the brother of Mary and Martha in the same place? And I would just say maybe he was. We don't know. We don't know where the soul, so to speak, uh, or the spirit, if you want to use that term, of Lazarus was uh, in the time after his death, when he was put in the tomb, and when his body was definitely in the tomb. We don't know. M maybe he was. Maybe he was in that place. We're just not told where the soul or spirit of Lazarus was while his body was definitely in that tomb. So, uh, again, that's really the idea. Don't Don't gain a wrong understanding of the status of Lazarus in John chapter 12, he was definitely dead, and Jesus just referred to him as sleeping as a common 
way of speaking of the dead. Um, we, we find the Apostle Paul using the same terminology in 1 Corinthians. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a passage just of the, from the same chapter we've spoken before. So sleep is just a peaceful, respectful, softer way of speaking of death uh, sometimes in the uh, biblical culture, in the biblical writings. Hope that's helpful for you there. Next question comes from Zoan. Uh, Zoan asks, what does 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 mean? It reads this, uh, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. Well, Zoan, this is a a very wonderful verse, and we can just walk through it step by step. Maybe it would be beneficial for us to take a look at this verse in a different translation. Uh, Let me just take a quick look at it here in the New Living Translation, which is a translation that I think is uh, very good. Again, we're talking about 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Let me go to that passage here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, in the New Living Translation, says this, And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and to escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Well, again, I I think that's a pretty good way, a pretty good way to translate uh, that very same thought. And really, what I would just explain it this way here, Zoan, is just simply this, is that God has given us wonderful promises in his word. And these promises in his word are the gateway for us to receive what God has given us in Jesus Christ. By faith, we receive what God has promised. By the way, that's the way you receive anything that anybody has promised to you. You receive it by faith. And God has promised to give those who believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do for us on the cross— He has given them the promise that in some way they will become partakers of the divine nature. We will share in God's nature. Now, listen, this this is heavy ground to walk upon. What does it mean that we will, in some sense, share the very nature of God? And and look, I'm going to be very straightforward with you, Zoan. I don't know if we can explain all that that means but I can explain to you some of what it means. And some of what it means is simply this, that Jesus Christ indwells us. If God the Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ, dwells within me, then certainly in some sense I share in the divine nature. Now, there may be more dimensions to that understanding than that, But if the living God lives in me, then in some way I share his nature. If I have a new man in me, as Ephesians says, that has been patterned according to Jesus Christ. Again, this is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Then in some way I share in the divine nature. And how do I receive that? How do I 
experience that. I experience it through believing the promises that God has made me, especially the promises given about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us, especially what Jesus did for us at the cross and in his resurrection. Now, having received this divine nature, it is a doorway, a pathway for us to escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And again, so all we're doing is taking a look at these verses, maybe looking at them in a different translation, an easier translation, and believing what they say. There is some sense in which we as believers in Jesus Christ, we share in, we partake in the divine nature. Now look, of course, it doesn't mean we're gods. Of course not. But what a strange and even foolish thing to think or to say. It doesn't mean that we become God. But in some way, we share in his divine nature. What a beautiful and powerful thing. Hope that's helpful for you there, Zoan. Let me go on to the next question here from Junebug. Junebug says, Hi, Pastor Guzik. During Jesus's earthly ministry, he declared that the Father was greater than him. Does Jesus still declare that the Father is greater than him in his glorified state in heaven? Well, Junebug, this is a very interesting question. When Jesus was on the earth, he was in obvious submission to God the Father. Just those titles, Father and Son, imply some kind of hierarchy. Now, we never, ever want to think that this means that Jesus, as God the Son, is somehow less than God the Father. A difference in hierarchy doesn't mean a difference in nature, a difference in value, a difference in purpose, one bit. Uh, you see somebody who's a CEO of a company, they run the whole thing. And then you see somebody who's a, you know, uh, uh, they sweep the parking lot in that company. Now, in man's eyes, they're, wow, one's so much greater, one's so much better than the other. The, the one makes a lot more money and can hire and fire the other one. But in God's eyes, in what those people actually are, they're both human beings of equal value and worth before God. So a person's value or status um, doesn't depend on where they are in a hierarchy. So during Jesus's earthly sojourn, his earthly pilgrimage, he definitely lived his life as a son submitted to his father. And in that sense, he could freely say that the father was greater than him. In his glorified state, we would still say that at least in some sense, the Father is still, um, or let me rephrase that, the Son is still submitted to the Father. Now, we don't know every dimension of this, and there are lines that we could travel down that would take us too far and imply some kind of separation in the Godhead, some separation in the Trinity. But we do know this. We do know that Jesus in the eternal state is spoken of as being seated at the right 
hand of God the Father. Now, that is a position of high standing and privilege, but yet Jesus is stated in reference to his position in terms of the Father, which implies at least some kind of sense, at least in in very minor sense, of some kind of hierarchy. We also know that the Son is still spoken of, the second person of the Trinity is spoken of as the Son in heaven, in eternity future. So, I think there's still some sense of hierarchy between the Father and Son. Again, never to imply in even the smallest way that they are different in their essential nature. But God the Father is still the Father, and God the Son is still the Son, even in heaven. Now, where there is big debate right now, and something I'm not even going to touch on, is was that true from eternity past And this is something that people like to debate and argue about at all. But we must make sure that we never disrupt that uh, teaching of the essential equality among God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In essence, in what they are, they are, there's, there's not senior God and junior God. They are all equally divine. They are all equally God. Anyway, good question on that June bug. Let me go on to the next question that comes from Tim. Tim asks this question. Why did Jesus not write some of his personal accounts, but instead his disciples did? Tim, you're not the first one to ask that question, and I think because it's a good question. Uh, People want to know, well, look, uh, Matthew wrote a gospel. Uh, Mark wrote a gospel. Luke wrote a gospel. John wrote a gospel. Why didn't Jesus write his own story? Why didn't Jesus write about his life himself? And again, I think that's a fair question. But remember, Jesus spoke in a few spots as one who did not give testimony of himself, but his works gave testimony. Uh, The Holy Spirit gave testimony. Others gave testimony. Now, Jesus did say that if he did give testimony of himself, it would be true, which is absolutely true, of course. But I I think it's just that God, in his providential plan, intended that others would give testimony of Jesus and even quote Jesus relevant to what he said about himself. There was a time when people said, well, Jesus didn't write one of the Gospels because Jesus didn't know how to write. Can you imagine that? People thinking that God the Word, Jesus himself the Logos, wouldn't know how to read and write. What a strange idea that would be. No, 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 it has nothing to do with that. It has something to do in whatever dimension we would want to put it, in the fact that God just in his providence, in his wisdom, understood that it was better for others to give this testimony of Jesus in writing the Gospels than for Jesus to give it himself, Uh, mainly because um, perhaps it wouldn't be accused of Jesus um, self-glorying, so to speak, uh, that it would be a testimony from others and not of himself. Uh, Beyond that, Tim, I think there's probably more to it than that, but beyond that, I don't have a ready answer for you. That's the best I could do at this moment. Thank you for that question. Let me go on to the next question from Jeanette. Where did the idea for halos come from? (laughs) Well, Jeanette, that's a great question. Um, 
you know, in ancient depictions of art, let me turn back to this uh, traditional. Okay, here, I don't know how well you can see it there on camera, but here is a uh, ancient uh, depiction of Jesus. Uh, he's in the traditional posture of the teacher there with the hands, you know, in that that's the posture saying that he's teaching. And uh, this is, you know, according to the iconography of Eastern Christianity. And here behind the head of Jesus is something that would be known as a halo there behind the head of Jesus. Um, from my understanding, and, and believe me, I, I'm no expert. I'm no expert on ancient art depictions of Jesus. But Jeanette, it's my understanding that the halos were used in art to identify either Jesus or saints. Uh, and the idea of halo was just something that was used so that everybody would know when looking at the picture, this is someone who was holy. Um, they, they would have that depiction behind them, indicating that they were either Jesus or that they were a saint. And uh, I, I don't know where that idea came from, other than people thinking that if they were making a painting or some kind of depiction of biblical characters they wanted it understood who the proper people were. Now you might say, well, with Jesus, it's easy because everybody knows what Jesus looks like. By the way, we just put a video on the YouTube channel called White Jesus. Uh, it's kind of prompted uh, from an examination of a book that my daughter gave me. I just happen to have that book here. This book, Son of Man, and it has depictions of Jesus in a few different cultures. So if you're kind of more interested in this idea of uh, what Jesus looked like and how he's depicted in art, look up that video on our YouTube channel, again, called White Jesus with a question mark, uh, and I'm discussing this book, uh, Son of Man, there. Anyway, in these depictions of Jesus artistically, maybe they thought, okay, if we're showing a crowd, we want to show who the saints are, and we'll do that with a halo— and if these human saints should have a halo, well, then of course Jesus should have a halo. We, we don't want to make him seem any less than then. So uh, even though there was sort of a traditional way to depict Jesus in artwork, perhaps that was also done uh, because it was done for the saints as well. That's sort of the best answer I could give you, uh, Jeanette, at least off the cuff. Um, I've got some books behind me that your question's kind of stirring me. Uh, I wonder if I would want to look it up in there. So anyway, may maybe at another time. Thank you, Jeanette. Uh, Francois, I, I don't know, Francois, I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce your name there. Uh, Piat is the last name there. Uh, let me deal with your question now. Thank you for your question. It is, Calvinists teach that only those who are chosen will be saved. Paul the Apostle seems to have been chosen. Can you explain this? I'm not a Calvinist, but this has always been challenging to me. Well, uh, Francois, uh, let me just say that what you're talking about is the biblical idea of election. That's choosing. Uh, when we elect something, we choose it. Uh, I choose to hold this bottle of water in my hand. You could say that I have elected to hold this bottle of water in my hand. And the idea of election is a biblical idea. The, the Bible says that God has those whom he has chosen. And so this is just a simple idea that, that it, if you are saving, Frank, well, I, I'm just going to take it that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Of course, I don't personally know you, but I'll just assume that, of course, which seems like a right assumption to make. Frank, well, you 
may or may not know it, but Jesus Christ chose you. And in some sense, he chose you from all eternity to love him, to walk with him, to believe in him. Now, of course, the great debate goes, how does God's eternal choosing of the individual, how does that mesh with the individual's choice to believe upon Jesus Christ or to not believe upon Jesus Christ? And the answer is God just makes these things flow together perfectly. He does not violate our will. He does not force himself upon us in that sense. But yet he works in us and through us to bring us to faith. We are to gain rest and assurance from the fact that God isn't making up his mind about us as he goes along. As if, well, he's on your side now, but should you mess up a little bit? Wow, he's going to choose somebody else. No, we're to find assurance and peace and security in the fact that in ways beyond my comprehension, I am elect in him from before the foundation of the world. And by the way, that is really the wonderful status of our election. We are elect in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate chosen one, the ultimate elect one, Jesus Christ. So we're chosen. We're chosen in him. We're chosen from before the foundation of the world. God has his people, whom you could call the chosen, the elect. And this is something that we can take great peace in. So, everybody who is saved, everybody who's going to go to heaven, is chosen and will put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, how those two things interact and intersect, maybe we don't know in fullness, but we just know that they're true. Um, There's a sort of a cliche, a story that pastors like to tell. Uh, that, you know, sort of illustrates this. And you can take it for what it's worth, but sometimes these illustrations can be really helpful. We, we, we kind of think of going to heaven, um, salvation, if you will, because salvation is definitely about more than going to heaven. Salvation has a real impact on this life right here, right now. But, but it, of course, it certainly includes the idea of going to heaven. So let's just speak about it in those terms at this moment. If you think about salvation as sort of going through a gateway into heaven. It's as if uh, we come up to that gateway and over the top of it is written, you know, all those who believe on me will be saved. It's written over the top, you know, whosoever will come to uh, Jesus Christ. Just, it's an open invitation that brings us in when we take a look at it over the top And then we walk through that gateway into heaven. And then we turn around and look back at that gateway. And over the back of it is written, elect from the foundation of the world. Well, again, you you could see where both things could be written over either side of the gateway. And look, I know, I understand. It's just a story. It's just to illustrate. It's just a, you know, sort of a cliche. But some of these things can be helpful. Both things can be written on God's gateway for us into salvation in Jesus Christ. So again, uh, Francois, I I hope that's helpful for you, and please forgive me for the mispronunciation of your name. I'm just thrilled that you're joining us here today. Next question comes from Joyce, who asked this question. 
Uh, With so much tragedy in the world and in my family's life, I'm starting to question God's promise to be our shepherd. How do I stop this apostasy in my heart? Joyce, let me first of all just say, bless you, dear sister. And um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear about the pain and tragedy that you are experiencing in your own life, in the life of those whom you know and love, and that you see out and about in the world today. But Joyce, let let me just tell you that um, God never promised to insulate us from all the tragedy and sorrow in this world. That's never in the promises of God for us. Christians, those who really love God, can and do sometimes suffer greatly. This is just the truth of what life is like in a fallen world. Sometimes that suffering is obviously directly tied to our testimony for Jesus Christ. For example, someone who's persecuted or has all their goods taken or is fired from their job because they are a believer. There's other times where it's not so easy to draw a line. Someone who develops a terrible illness and suffers greatly from that or suffers a great accident or has something terrible happen in the lives of one of their children. But here, Joyce, I want you to understand that Jesus did not come as our shepherd to protect us or insulate us from all suffering and pain, but to make it to where the suffering and pain we endure has meaning and is ultimately redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ. You know that great verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, for we know that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. I want you to understand, Joyce, that that verse, Romans 8, 28, does not say that all things are good, but that God works things together for all good. In other words, any particular event or tragedy or crisis can be seen as a terrible event in and of itself, in isolation. But God didn't say all things in isolation are good. He said he will work all things together for good. And Joyce, I want to assure you that in Jesus' name, especially for you as a dear sister in Jesus Christ, as someone who's part of God's family, when it's all said and done, and you look back on all things from the heavenly perspective, you will say, yes, Lord, you had a way that you worked it all together for good in ways that I couldn't see or understand. Joyce, if I could make a recommendation to you, go to my website, EnduringWord.com, and read if you're more oriented for reading, or listen if you're more oriented to listening, to my teaching through the book of Job, especially the first few chapters and the first last chapters. 
I mean, I don't want to tell you to ignore the middle chapters, but the most important parts of the book of Job are the first three or four chapters and the last three or four chapters. Listen to that. To gain a perspective on what God can and will do through tragedy. Now, we don't have that teaching up on the YouTube channel. It's only audio. And maybe in the future, we'll put that audio teaching up on the YouTube channel just so that it's more accessible to people. Uh, but I, I think you may benefit from that, Joyce. And again, God bless you, dear sister. You're struggling with things that many believers struggle with. And uh, that's okay. You can bring that pain. You can bring that grief. You can bring that confusion to God, who's a shepherd who loves you. So thank you, Joyce. God bless you. Uh, let me continue on with a question from Freya. Uh, what's the best way to understand the Trinity? Okay, Freya, uh, I'll give you my way to understand the Trinity. And again, we understand every explanation, certainly every illustration of the Trinity falls short. Um, there's no perfect illustration. There's no perfect explanation. I'll give you the ones that work the best for me. And maybe this will be helpful to you in some way. There is one God. The Bible clearly presents this God to us. That God is known in the Hebrew scriptures as Elohim, as Adonai, or specifically by his covenant name, Yahweh. One God, Yahweh. That's his covenant name. Now, this one God is revealed to us in three persons. These persons are not sequential, but they are standing, so to speak. And we know from understanding both the Greek scriptures, the New Testament, and the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that God the Father claims to be Yahweh, God the Son claims to be Yahweh, and God the Holy Spirit claims to be Yahweh. And we know that Yahweh is one. So in some way that kind of goes beyond our conception, we have one God in three persons. Let me explain, Freya. We are not tritheists. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God in three persons. There's a big difference between being a tritheist and a Trinitarian. A tritheist believes in three different gods. A Trinitarian believes in one God in three persons. So I hope that's helpful for you. That's probably the best way that I can explain it. That this God revealed to us in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, is revealed to us especially, but not exclusively, it's also in the Hebrew Scriptures, but especially in the Greek Scriptures, the New Testament, we learn that God the Father is Yahweh, God the Son is Yahweh, and God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. And uh, this is, I think, the best way for us to understand kind of the whole dynamic, if we can put it that way, of the Trinity. Okay, let me go back to the next question here from the Seeker. Um, the Seeker says, Do you know why the fishing miracle, why Jesus meets Simon and Andrew, is not included in the Gospel of John as it is in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, um, Seeker... 
I can kind of tell you, I don't exactly know. I, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why. I can suppose why. Um, most people believe that the Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels written. The last one. And if that's the case, it was the last of the four, then it may very well be that John had access to the other four Gospels, and he was very careful to not repeat some things that the other Gospels... Now, of course, there are some things that are in all four Gospels. The Transfiguration is in all four Gospels. The, um, uh, of course, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are in all four Gospels. So, of course, some things are in all four Gospels. But I think that there were many things that John said, hey, Matthew, Mark, and Luke did a good job of telling us the story of Jesus, a God-inspired and anointed job. Uh, I'm here to fill in some of the things that they didn't speak about. Because if you remember, it's a great line at the very end of the Gospel of John, where he says that if we were to write a book uh, of everything that Jesus said and did, the world could not contain the number of books. And uh, that's really a wonderful thing to think about, that there's even more that Jesus didn't say, that we will have eternity to find out about in heaven. So uh, I would just make that suggestion. It's not something I can say with certainty, because the scriptures themselves don't tell us, but it's, um, it's of some likelihood that the Gospel of John was written last, and John didn't want to include things, uh, or at least some things, that were already included in some of the other Gospels. Okay, let me go on to the next question, again from uh, Subway, Tunnel Banan, uh, there in uh, Sweden, says, Will Christians who die while sinning go to heaven or hell if they die a sudden death before they have time to repent of that particular sin? Okay, uh, Subway, let me give you the quick answer to that question and then I'll give you an explanation. I'm going to read the question one more time and then give you a quick answer to it and then explain it. Will Christians who die while sinning go to heaven or hell if they die a sudden death before they have time to repent of that particular sin? The quick answer to that question is, yes, they will go to heaven. And let me explain to it by the way that you ask the question. First of all, you define these people as Christians. Well, these are people who are in Jesus Christ. They are people who are in Christ. They are born again by God's Spirit. They are saved because they put their faith in Jesus Christ, in who he is, and especially what he has done for them at the cross and in his resurrection. They are believers. Yes, they will go to heaven. Now you say, well, what about these people? They, they, they died while they were in a practice of sin. Maybe they died while they were speeding. Now, speeding is breaking the law. And uh, the speed limit was 65 miles an hour. The speed limit was 100 kilometers an hour. And there they were doing 130 kilometers an hour. And they got in a traffic accident and they died. Surely, surely they must be going to hell. No, they won't go to hell. Because every Christian is a combination of sinner and saint. We aren't saved by our holy lives. We are saved so that we can live holy lives. The thinking you speak of here, Tunnel Banan, is really um, thinking that comes from Roman Catholic tradition, at least the best I understand it. The idea that there are 
mortal sins and venial sins. And if someone dies with an unconfessed mortal sin, then they're going to hell. Now, again, that's Roman Catholic tradition. It's not what the Bible says. We are not saved by our um, performance, so to speak. We can't become unsaved by our performance. Now, it's true that a sinful life, especially a habitually sinful life with no repentance or no conscience, that may indicate that someone was never saved to begin with. Their life has never been transformed by Jesus Christ. But if we're not saved by our performance, we can't become unsaved by our performance, if you understand what I mean by that. So the idea that if I'm a believer, and I truly am a believer, but I'm in sin at a particular moment, if I die in the commission of that sin, then I'm going to hell. No, that's not simply a biblical idea. Look, we don't have the ability or the time to specifically repent of every sin that we commit. Think about it just for a moment. You know, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you define sin as some way that you fall short of the glory of God, then friends, there's probably a thousand ways that you've already fallen short of the glory of God today. Do you have either the ability or the time to call every one of those ways out and specifically repent of those before God? You don't. This is just something that we don't have the ability or the time for. Now, I don't say that to diminish the importance of repentance. We must repent of known sin when we come to God initially to place our faith in Jesus Christ and as an ongoing practice as the Holy Spirit convicts us. But repentance is not a way that we earn salvation. No, not at all. Um, Repentance is a demonstration of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a lot to that question there, Tunnel Banan, but we don't need to um, belabor it so much in the sense of just saying that the way that you presented the question, it's a firm no. Will Christians who die while sinning go to heaven or hell if they die a sudden death before they have time to repent before that particular sin? They will go to heaven if they are genuinely Christians. That's all there is to it. And it is possible for a genuine Christian to be in sin at least for a season. And uh, that's something we can understand and have some peace in biblically and realize that we are not saved by our sinless performance we cannot lose our salvation by simply sin uh, or the commission of a specific sin. All right, well, that's going to be our last question for the day. Um, I'm so pleased that you could join us today. I do want to say this. Next Thursday, that's going to be December 23rd, we're going to have a giveaway. I haven't decided what it'll be yet, but let me just say it might be pretty big. Matter of fact, I'll say it right now. We're going to give away a collection of all my New Testament commentaries in print. Uh, Gosh, if you go to a website, that's worth more than $150. We're going to give that away to somebody next Thursday. 
my entire New Testament commentary collection in print. Look, you can get it for free at EnduringWord.com. But next Thursday, just a Christmas gift to our viewing audience. We're going to give that away to somebody randomly next Thursday. Hope you can join us. So, um, hey, have a blessed, blessed day. Thank you to all of you who have tuned in. Thanks to Andrea, who substituted for Devin, our normal moderator. Devin couldn't do it today. Uh, thanks to Andrea, who filled in. And thank you for your continuing prayers for enduring work and the work that we do. Uh, we're so pleased by those who stand with us and partner with the work, especially those who pray for us and pray for the ongoing work. God bless you, and we're very going to be pleased to join you next week, where we are again going to have a very, very special giveaway. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.